This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome back to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movie podcast that, if I'm honest, finds the prospect of being judged on my decorations and my house enormously stressful. I just want to put up all of the things. I don't want to think about themes or color or schemes or whatever. Anyway, hello, everybody. My name is Helen O'Hara. I'm your host. And today we are talking about Candy Cane Lane, my nightmare scenario because it is about a street where everyone decorates their houses in extremely impressive fashions. Our hero, Chris, who's played by Eddie Murphy, is determined this year to win the big competition, which is a thing that apparently exists. And he can win, he reckons, $100,000 by having the best decorated house on the street and goes to increasingly desperate lengths to win that competition. And joining me to discuss Candy Cane Lane is James Dyer of Empire. Hello, James. Ho, 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 Helen. I'm feeling very, uh, I'm feeling very festive and Christmassy. Excellent. So this is not what I expected from you. Usually you're a bit of a Grinch. Uh, so well, well you know, I reserve my Grinchiness for, you know, important occasions. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I put up a tree. That is the extent of it, I will say. Yeah. So just to be clear, so I live in a small village with no streetlights. And my road is not dissimilar to Candy Cane Lane in that every single house on my road goes berserk with the Christmas lights. There are reindeer, there are Santas, there's snow falling down one of the houses. There's like a projector that goes on one of them and has Christmas scenes on the front of the house. And because there are no streetlights it's incredibly bright and then you go in and there's one house shrouded in shadow and that's <laughs> mine with just an ominous red glow from behind the windows uh and that's you it shock me. i do not partake in the gaudy displays of uh christmas exuberance uh you know so I would fail the Candy Cane Lane competition is what I'm saying. See, I mean, I, right, so let's talk about this. So, the, the, you know, the start of the film, they kind of lay out these stakes that there is this competition and our hero, Chris, has just lost his job. So he's particularly anxious to win the competition this year. But he does seem to be in with a chance anyway, because he is the kind of guy who has carved mm. all his own decorations. If I were a judge, that would beat the dude with all of the blow up Christmas thingies. Yeah. You know? But the, unfortunately, it's America, therefore capitalism. And I think maybe they're making a, a statement about all of his lovingly hand-carved ornaments mean nothing when the guy opposite has this sort of inflatable Father Christmas and like carols and things. And it feels like a tack competition more than a, an actual Christmas competition. It feels like the gaudier you are, the more likely you are to win. Because if that were not the case, and frankly, were I the judge, the Matrix house next door would 100% win my prize for A, standing outside the house wearing sunglasses glasses and leather coats and B for having you know the matrix text going on your house yeah 
Tell you what, just before you and I talk about this anymore, I'm going to introduce a quick interview because I got the chance recently to talk to the film's writer and directors. They are respectively Kelly Younger and Reginald Hudlin. And I got the chance to ask the question on everyone's lips, was this inspired by the joke about the dyslexic who sells his soul to Santa? Here's what they had to say. You just delighted me. <laughs> I never heard that joke, but uh, I'm very excited for the rest of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, genuinely, like, how, how did this? How did this come together? Because it's such, it's such an original idea to sort of mix, you know, the, all that stress of having the perfect Christmas and you know, keeping up with the Joneses or right doing the Joneses for preference, but also mixing it in with this really kind of almost horror movie concept of, you know, if you don't do it right, it's all over. Well, I guess I guess I can start in terms of like where I got the idea for the movie. Um, and that is even with all of its fantastical creatures and all the Christmas magic and and, you know, the 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 big action set pieces, uh, it kind of is based on a true story. Uh, it really is based on a real town in El Segundo, California, where my parents have lived for many, many years. They live up the street that leads into Candy Cane Lane. My father has uh, made a career of over-decorating for the holidays. So, um, and I'd always wanted to write a Christmas movie. And so um, that's where I turned. I turned to sort of what I know and, and who I know. So it's it's based on a on a real family and a real, and a real place. How did you come aboard, Reggie? Well, you know, uh, the studio sent me this script and I loved it. And my main contribution was, uh, how do we make it bigger and more ridiculous? So <laughs> <laughs> I took all of Kelly's beautiful work and I just said, look, we all know the mythology of Christmas, which is great, right? It's like the mythology of vampires. We all know the rules and how it works. And Christmas is very elastic that way. You can stretch it. So let's just, how far can we take all of this stuff? It was all there to be done, but in an era where movies are all about scope and scale and spectacle, how can we, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one thing to do it in a superhero movie, but to do it in a Christmas movie, it's a, it's a whole other kind of impact. And it, it is a very particular tone to hit, which, you know, I think I think you did because you have the sort of the absurdity of this, you know, rogue uh, elf, uh, basically, you know, taking people's souls slash lives at Christmas. But you also have a really genuine, very grounded, very human story about a family just trying to get by. So it's 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 a, it's a lovely mix. Um, I have to ask as well. Who came up with the Christmas names for the family? Because my, I have to say, I watched it with my sister. She clocked it. I hadn't noticed. <laughs> and that... she was extremely smug when it was eventually pointed out in the movie. Oh, great. <laughs> that, uh, that was me. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to start with a hero named Chris, just for a little pun on, on Chris Kringle. And then I just thought it would be clever to uh, have his daughter named Holly, because uh, it, it kind of started out as, as a father-daughter adventure, and then it expanded into, into the entire family. And then I just thought, you know, a guy like Chris, of course he's going to fight to make sure that his kids can all have holiday names, you know, with Joy and Nick. And of course he's going to marry Carol, right? I mean, it, it must have been love at first sight. It, it, it was destined. It was clearly <laughs> destined. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell me about bringing Eddie aboard then. Is this, uh, is this, was this a chance for a reunion that you'd been looking for, Reggie, or is this something that was... We have been trying to find the right project to, 
team back on uh, for a while. And when I got the script and I read the script, I loved it. And they said, oh, and by the way, Eddie's attached to star in it. I'm like, well, there you have it. And we're done. Let's start on Monday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is that's, easy. That's, yeah, that that is that is kind of a no-brainer. I, I also I, I love, I was thinking about this when I was watching it, that so many of his films for the last maybe nearly 20 years, it feels like he's been playing father figures. Now, obviously, he has a very big family of his own. This is This is an extremely important part of his life. But it really feels like this is something he wants to explore on screen, that he wants to delve into all the difficulties and the joys of, of family life. You know, one of the very first conversations I had with Eddie is I asked him, I said, what, what does Christmas mean to you? <laughs> and he got a little quiet and he said, it means everything. And, and he shared stories with me and Reggie about how he celebrates the holidays and how he actually goes overboard in decorating and he makes ornaments and he makes gifts and, and he loves having his family around. And so I think, especially for, for Reggie and myself, you know, of course we love having this comedy legend uh, in the movie, but he also brought a lot of his own traditions, his own values of, you know, how important family is to him. He brought a lot of that to the role. And I think it it created a very, you know, deep and complex character in addition to being hilarious. So I, we feel very lucky. Exactly. I mean, for me, that was the thing. Uh, you know, when we did Boomerang, you know, 30 years ago, we we're both single guys living in New York, going to nightclubs, that kind of business. And now we're both you know, married with kids and we're, you know, trying to make Christmas awesome. So uh, it's great when you make a movie uh, that is grounded in your own reality, right? It's it's real method acting, uh, method directing, uh, and it just makes the whole process so easy because um, even though Kelly wrote the script uh, about his life, I'm like, how did you somehow... Um, you know, put my life on screen. What do you know? And who are you getting your information from? Uh, because it's so, re I mean, the conversations in the script are conversations that have happened in our home. Yeah. I have to ask as well, I mean, because you, you mentioned Boomerang. Um, Eddie's not the only Boomerang cast member here, of course, because we also get a little appearance from David Allen Greer. And it feels like you're kind of almost, I don't want to say apologizing for his role in Boomerang, but, you know, he was the very straight-laced, very stable, very steady guy in that. He's a lot cooler in this. Is, is yeah. this a little bit of a, you know, rebalancing? No, I think there's no apologies for who he was in Boomerang. He was True. awesome. Fair. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if your guy's hanging out, you're one of those three guys. You could be Martin, you could be David, you could be Eddie. That's up to you and your ability to acknowledge who you are as a human being, right? Uh, everyone may think they're Eddie, but not everyone is Eddie, right? Yeah. So, uh, but David is an extraordinarily versatile actor. I mean, we we know from his work on In Living Color and so on and so on. Uh, so I, it's a big role to fill. It's, you know, and I got, well, who will annihilate this? Who will take this and plus it up, you know, to the high heavens? It's like, well, there's the easy win, David. Even if he wasn't in Boomerang, he'd be the right guy for the job. But the fact that we also get a reunion out of it, I mean, look, you could see uh, on set when David shows up, you see Eddie get into the feeder mode where he's like, you know, I'm just going to set you up with gags because you 
you can catch anything I throw at you and, you know, kill it. And deliver. Amazing. Um, I wanted to ask as well about the decorations, because you mentioned, you know, um, Eddie makes his own. Obviously, so does Chris in the movie. Now, it kind of seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it felt to me like this is a guy who could have won the best dressed Christmas house anyway, because those were beautiful. I mean, and the fact that he had made them by hand, far more impressive than somebody who just went out and bought, you know, a couple of windblowers and some socks. I don't know how, I don't really know how the inflatable ones work. I live in a flat, I don't have room. But, um, you know, it, it it felt like maybe he was kind of, you know, doing himself down at the beginning of the movie and not really giving himself enough credit for how good he had it. I actually disagree with you. I think he knows very well how good his work is and he's railing at the world for going, how do you go for cheap plastic inflatables? Don't, isn't there any sense of quality and value anymore? Which I think we've all had that you know, yelling at the clouds moment in our lives. So uh, I really relate to him on that one. That's fair. Okay. That's a, that's a very well, well put point. I also, I ask everybody who comes on this podcast about their own Christmas traditions. Do you have a particular Christmas tradition in your house that is different from everyone else that you know? Is there something that you have to do every year or it's not Christmas? Well, what, what our family does, this is another reason why I wanted to write a Christmas movie, is our big tradition is watching Christmas movies as a family. Um, it's really what we look forward to. We watch the same ones over and over, which I hope Candy Cane Lane will become for a lot of people. Um, but that's really that's really what we what we love to do from from the classics to the more recent ones. But to me, there's nothing more joyful than all cuddled up on the couch with the dogs and treats and hot chocolate and things like that and just watching Christmas movies. Um, which ones are your absolute must-haves? I'm, I'm guessing Muppet Christmas Carol is somewhere in there. I mean, it it almost doesn't get any better, but, you know, obviously we we drew a lot of inspiration um, for, for this film, you know, from things like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, those those wonderful thematics of family and, and neighbors all coming together, um, the childlike wonder of Elf, um, and then also, you know, controversially, I'm interested in, in your opinion on in terms of your podcast, but, you know, Die Hard is a great Christmas movie. Great Christmas movie. And, yeah. you know, and I, I was just so thrilled to partner with Reggie on this in particular, because talk about a director who loves a good action sequence. You know, you, you can't I couldn't have asked for a better, better partner than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny for our I mean, when I was a kid, Christmas meant I grew up in the Midwest, so I climb into the attic. I get our Christmas tree that we reused every year. I assembled the pieces. I had the, you know, silver tinsel branches. Um, and then you put the, 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 the light bulb with the colored light that, you know, changes it colors. And I thought, well, you, you can't top this in terms of Christmas magic for sure. Right now, it's we're a lot fancier. We get a real tree, and um, we don't have one of those beautifully art directed trees. It's, no. it's ornaments from my childhood, the stuff that my kids made in second grade out of dried pasta. Um, it's ornaments that we buy throughout the year wherever we travel as a family. We get an ornament from San Francisco or, or Zurich or wherever. Uh, it's a hot mess, but it's our family mess, and I love it. I am a hundred percent with both of you. This is this is absolutely how Christmas should be done. Um, I have, I think, 
four giant boxes of baubles and not enough tree to put them on. So I respect <laughs> that very much. Um, I also wanted to ask though about it, just on the decorations theme about all of the houses in Candy Cane Lane because you guys came up with some incredible themes for all the different houses, made them stand out, made them individual. Are these inspired by real houses you've seen either in in the real Candy Cane Lane or around LA? Or, you know, was it just, you know, you guys in the art department going wild? It was a bit of both. So, I mean, definitely there are some houses on the actual El Segundo Candy Cane Lane that, you know, has sort of an airplane theme, has a surfing Santa theme. But our our production designer, our director, you know, um, the, the the team of artists involved with this uh, was magical. I mean, the, the Matrix house came out I mean. of Aaron's head <laughs> and... It just, it, we just, Reggie and I would just stop and stare at it when we weren't filming because just, it truly, truly was magical. Yeah. And, you know, and we, when we, uh, it was like probably three in the morning and we were just doing the individual shots of each house, right? And as we got to each house, because it, it was so, well, I don't know if you would call that late or early, right? When you're at 3 a.m., uh, so I said, look, let's let's blast some music to keep the crowd pumping. So I would try to play an appropriate music cue for each house. So I found some, you know, uh, some surf music when we shot that house. And I played some techno when we we're shooting the Matrix house. And the whole crew was just having so much fun as I kind of like freestyle scored each shot. <laughs> and I was like, I think we got to do this in the movie. And my producer's like, do you know how much that's going to cost? I was like, it means nothing. More <laughs> is more. We're making a Christmas movie. Well, look, I, I think that's a great note to which, on which to end. More is more. We're making a Christmas movie. I 100% agree with this. Maximalism all the way when it comes to Christmas. Thank you so much for talking to me. And best of luck for the film's debut. I can't wait for everyone to see it. Great. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Cheers. Merry have, Christmas to you too. Have a happy holiday. <laughs> you too. Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam. And every week we get together on our podcast Song by Song to discuss the music of Tom Waits. Uh, Waits is a writer, musician and performer. Uh, you might know him from his four decades of songs like uh, What's He Building In There, Downtown Train, Martha, Rain Dogs. Or you might have seen him in films like Dracula, uh, The Fisher King, uh, The mm. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, or if you made it that far, Licorice Pizza. We're joined every week by guests from various backgrounds and disciplines, and together we take a close listen to his work, analysing the topics and tones he uses in his music, and honestly engaging with one of the most interesting voices of his generation. Listen to our latest season or dive into our back catalogue by visiting songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song in your podcatcher of choice. All right, that was Kelly Younger and Reginald Hudlin. You're back with myself and James. So yeah, I I mean, these are apparently all inspired by real houses. They're inspired by a place that Kelly Younger actually lived, mm. which is slightly mind-blowing. I definitely want to go to there. Unlike yourself, you see, I'm I'm very much up for, I love the sort of the home alone level of lights, you know, where you've got the lovely white string just all around your house, highlighting its best features. I think that looks pretty chic. If I were rich and had a house instead of a small flat in London... <laughs> I'd be all over that nonsense. White lights, I think, are the way to go. I do have a point where, and this has happened to me a few times, where I've looked out the window and gone, oh, 
Oh, it's 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 morning. Oh no, it's not morning. It's just that uh, the guy opposite has like incandescent white lights all over his house, and it has oh, okay, enough bad. lumens to essentially make it feel like a second dawn. Uh, but that is probably what I go like. I'm not a big fan of the coloured lights. I very much mm. prefer the kind of twinkly white lights. Yeah. Uh, even like you know, like some people like warm white. Oh, no, no, no. The colder the better. Ice cold white lights. That's what I like. All right, Mister Freeze. Jeez. Um... I, I don't know. I think I, I have been to some of these houses with the craziness. So I, one year I spent Christmas with my aunt in the Cayman Islands, which was amazing. But there was a house there, obviously owned by an American, and they did all of this. But they would also basically open it to the entire island, as far as I could tell. And, you know, you made a donation. Maybe they gave all the money to charity, presumably once they paid their light bills. And they had kind of all of this stuff that you see on Candy Cane Lane in one place. And it is kind of delightful, but also kind of terrifying. I, I So I'm, I, I am very mixed on the whole thing. But of course, that ends up not being really the focus. The focus ends up being the fact that in an effort to win this competition, poor old Chris goes along to what turns out to be essentially a cursed Christmas tree shop. I mean, I would instantly be snared by this. So it's a real <laughs> concern to me having this in a film. Um and, uh, and yes, does sell his soul to an elf called Pepper, played by Gillian Bell. I have infinite respect for anyone who writes a Christmas movie about selling your soul to essentially a dark elf. Uh, it's so twisted. I remember when we talked about this, and it turned out not to be the case, but I genuinely wondered if this had started life as a horror film. Because you can totally see... The, look, but for a reindeer whisker, like this thing is a horror movie. Just like I say, and I think I wrote this in the review, like one dark day in the edit room. And this is a very, very different movie <laughs> because you do. You've got like you've got like Christmas ornaments that have come to life trying to steal your soul. You've got horrendous things like attacking them in the day. You know, it really is a combination of like it's part It's a Wonderful Life. It's part Drag Me to Hell. It's kind of this, this unholy concoction uh, of these like weird demonic forces with festive cheer and and you know i i respect the game quite frankly i i do respect how weird it is because it it only gradually becomes clear you know mm. for the first sort of i don't know 20 30 minutes of this film you're like well this is this is a nice this is a nice eddie murphy family comedy we've seen quite a lot of these in the last few years i mean eddie murphy to be fair has 10 children himself he is presumably keen to have lots of family entertainment around at all <laughs> all occasions just to keep them all occupied so he has done his part to make as much as possible. But, you know, you're like, okay, it's a it's an Eddie Murphy family comedy. There he is. He's got his lovely wife, Tracy Ellis Ross. Three gorgeous kids. They're all, they've got their little problems, but they're all going to sort them out by the end of the movie. And then the stakes become apparent and you're just flung, you're right, into this whole other situation, which is absolutely out of a horror movie. And it's still played in a way that kids can watch as long as they don't think about it too hard because then they're not going to sleep at night. Yeah. Is that it? Oh, so you're going to be imprisoned for all eternity inside a Christmas ornament. That's not great, is it? It's not It's not super great, I wouldn't say. And no. just like, you know, the tree ornaments coming to life, like the partridges, you know, the, the sort of creepy sort of ring-esque calls he gets initially as well. It's just, it just, honestly, it feels so heavily influenced by all those kind of classic horror films. And and I loved it because the thing is, you, you know, when I, when I first was going to watch this, I did so, let's be honest, with a sense of impending doom. Like There was a sense of you dread did, to yes. it because it's a Christmas film which doesn't bode well off the bat and it's an Eddie Murphy one, which doubly so. Because Eddie Murphy, who I love unreservedly and who was my absolute idol in the 80s, has terrible taste in scripts. He picks it because I think the problem is he leans too far into very silly comedy. 
Uh, and I don't know what it is about it that appeals to him, but he does pick comedies that are just very, very silly and oftentimes just aren't very funny or very sophisticated, which was not the case in the 80s. Um, and I thought this would be one of those. And actually was very pleasantly surprised by this. And I don't think everything lands in it, but there's enough here to make it fun. And I actually think that, you know, Kelly Younger's script, like, the gag rate is quite prodigious. Like the sheer volume of gags, and again, not all of them here, but there are some really, really funny ones in there. Yeah, there's a lot more kind of, you're right, the, a, a lot higher gag rate than I was expecting, and also a bit more effective use of the of the kind of caper elements of the story than I was expecting. So when he's bought this, you know, this crazy, what's the word for that thingy when it turns around and it makes a moving picture? Oh, I should know what this is called. It's fallen out of my brain. It's a something a scope a strobe a something. It's a scope. It's, it's a, a scope something scope, of some isn't it? Sort. Yeah, yeah. A thingy scope. Um, gyros. Uh, no, it's no, not. It's not anyway, a gyroscope. it's the turny thing that makes the pictures look like they're moving. Yeah, aspect of the giant decoration that he buys. That I mean, I thought that was amazing. I was like, well, I would be swayed by that as a judge of these these Christmas houses. That is like nothing I've ever seen before. I thought the production design in that in the, these respects was really, really impressive. Like when you go into her store and you're like, wow, everything looks incredible. This really is the greatest Christmas decoration store in the world. Fantastic production design. Fantastic design of that item. I don't know, that decoration. Amazing. But then you have this idea that all of the, all of the birds, all of the people from the 12 days of Christmas have all come out and run amok. And they have to hunt them down one by one. And that could have been the cheesiest thing mm. in the world. And it's actually, there are kind of real stakes. Like I was genuinely worried for Carol, Tracy Ellis Ross's character, when she's trying to, you know, impress her big bosses at work, get a much needed promotion, much deserved promotion as well by the signs of it. And uh, and she's got to contend with French chickens while she does so. Do you know what? There you was know? genuinely a point where, like, and I think it was, I, I, I hadn't quite twigged what was going on. I think I must have been very tired. I said, like, why are those chickens wearing berets? I'm very good. Oh, French hens. French <laughs> I was like, hens. It, took, it took a minute. And the geese are laying and you've got the lords are leaping and you've got the maid are milking and you've got all of a sudden, like once I got what it was and they're, oh, they're crank calling birds. Like that's very smart. That was very, very clever and so silly at the same time. Yeah. And I love it when we combine those two. So yeah, so but that could have been exhausting, you know, but I think they they layered in enough human drama around it that it didn't feel quite so tiring. I think I, I thought the, the little people, the little, that sounds like I'm trying to be PC, but I mean the, the tiny the people, decoration yeah. <laughs> people, they had the potential to be a lot more tiresome. Mm. And I think it's to the credit of the actors that they mostly didn't. Yeah, I think so too. I thought I thought Chris Redd kind of walked that line, but was pretty good as Lamplighter mm. Gary. Uh, Robin Deeb was funny. Nick Offen was an odd bit of casting because he plays this kind of Dickensian gentleman called Pip. Uh, but I never understand why you cast known people but get them to disguise their voices it makes no sense to me so you might as well just have anyone off the street to be fair we do see him at the end but it wasn't until we saw him that i had any idea it was nick hoffman so i was like oh right I mean, it wasn't a bad english accent but it didn't sound no, like him didn't sound like right, him at all. so it's kind of yeah. a, bit, a bit odd, a bit odd. <laughs> um and also i mean the kids i thought you know they're th these are fairly um how can i put this fairly typical problems to have in american movies you know one kid is failing one subject because his parents are ignoring his passion mm. projects. Um, another wants to go to a different university that her parents don't want her to go to. I think I've seen that in every movie about an American 17-year-old. 
Yeah. I mean, even Gilmore Girls, my beloved Gilmore Girls, does the same thing when Rory decides to go to Harvard instead of no Yale instead of Yale instead of Harvard. My apologies. So you know, it it that that could have been very very trite indeed. But I thought the the child actors were good, and you know there was just enough tension in there, and and they balanced the focus between those problems and you know, the very real threat of their dad being turned into a doll well enough that you kind of, they kind of got away with it. I mean, I kind of got the sense from the kids a little bit like, would it be the worst thing if he spent his life in ornament? Because he was a bit of a pain. He didn't really <laughs> listen to his kids. He was maddeningly obtuse and refused to kind of listen to anything or really appreciate what was going on around him, despite an abundance of evidence, uh, which I find I found a little bit irritating, if I'm honest with you. Um, but no, the kids the kids were kind of cool. Joy, Nick and Holly, we should say, the festively named. And of course, wife Carol as well. Wife Carol uh, and himself, Chris. Yes, Merry yeah, Christmas. There is definitely a theme. Definitely a theme here. <laughs> it is, it's a very specific thing, isn't it? Like, I enjoy Christmas, but I mean, the... The sort of livery of Christmas can very quickly become wearing. And I must admit, people who obsess over the livery of it, sometimes that exhausts me. Whereas I think there's something quite twee and cute about it. Like you and I have trawled around endless Christmas stores in the many years that we've known each other. The Liberty one I in particular. you to one, James. One. <laughs> it feels like endless. was hundreds, thousands of them, <laughs> Helen. You've dragged me around them. Uh, you know, we've picked up baubles and stuff. And I have a thing where I always buy a new bauble every year. Because um, I like I like Christmas trees that are eclectic. I don't like homogenous mm. ones. I think there's nothing more depressing than just like this bland tree with just like red and gold balls on it. It's just like, well, why even bother? <laughs> Genuinely, yes. looking at my tree right now, just just to name me a couple. Okay, I have uh, two different dragons, um, felt versions of the stars of the Princess Bride, uh, the space dog Laika, uh, a large fountain pen, the TARDIS, Jack Skellington. And a, a sort of weird 3D poster for uh, strong men in a Victorian circus. Very nice. Well, I can I can not quite meet that, but I've got Longclaw, Jon Snow's sword. Good, I've got a good. I've got I don't have a Winter is Coming one, but I do have a Lannister bauble. I've got an Infinity Gauntlet. I've got a Death Star. I've got an R two D two on there as well. I have a little tag from Tom Cruise, which came with the cake that he sent. Amazing. <laughs> that hangs on the tree as well. Merry Christmas from Tom Cruise. Um, God, what other ones I've got? I've got a, an Empire one. One, which has the Empire logo on it and flashes lights, uh, which got sent to the oh. office one year, which was quite fun. How did you? What? 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 How, where was I that <laughs> Indeed. year? Indeed, uh, I've got a I've got a Hogwarts bell as well, and I think I've got a Hogwarts crest one uh, on there too. So I've got I've got quite a selection of, of of nerdy ones. In fact, I have a whole batch of Star Wars, like just round balls with different Star Wars characters' faces on the balls. But I tend to mm. ration those. I only put like two or three on each year because otherwise it gets a bit overwhelming. You don't want to have it matchy-matchy. No, exactly. It has to keep the variety up there. That's very important. Yeah. There's two entire boxes I didn't even open this year. (laughs) But that's the best way to do it. So you can pick and choose. So each year you say, well, this year, now it's your time to shine. We're going to put you up this year. But you guys, no, not so much. I'm actually bauble forward this year. There's more baubles than normal and fewer uh, geeky nonsense. Oh, really? There you go. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yes, I think I think you're right. And I think this I think this this movie is is interesting in getting a little bit into the competitive side of Christmas, which is something that, that a couple of films have tackled in the past, that sort of keeping up with the Joneses element of doing Christmas. And I've I've mostly hated them. 
because it's so far from my experience. Yeah. Um, again, maybe because I haven't had the outside of a house to decorate or I haven't been in that culture of your street, apparently, or Candy Cane Lane. But it, it feels like that's not really impinged upon my consciousness yet. My, bi- my big frustration, as I've discussed with you in the past, is that I can't fit all my decorations on my tree and my my ceiling height does not keep pace with my Christmas tree decoration acquisition. Is it a, is it a um, real tree? Is it a living tree? No, not this year, no. Um, sometimes, yes. I've never had a real tree. Never. There was the falling over incident of 2019 uh, where the tree fell over and I lost several bottles <gasps> I really liked. So, you know, that has met, given me a little bit of the fear. Well, you know where you stand with a plastic tree. They're quite well behaved. Yeah, upright. That's how I stand, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we may be getting slightly off topic. Um, <laughs> did you have did you have a favourite uh, comic set piece or anything that particularly leapt out at you? I, I obviously you know what I'm going to say here. I very much enjoyed the Die Hard riff in this, which I thought was great. <laughs> and the second they mentioned the Nakatomi Plaza, I was like, "Come on, this is genius!" Uh, yes. So yes, I enjoyed that an awful lot. Uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought that was, uh, you know, poking fun at the whole is Die Hard a Christmas movie question. Again, our canonical answer on this podcast is yes. Stop shouting at me. My God. Um, but it, but yes, it was, it was a fun little twist on it. And the idea that, you know, everyone has a Christmas themed task or challenge mm. to escape Pepper's clutches, but they're not all about chasing down the 12 days of Christmas, which, which did feel a little bit random when I first... <laughs> watch this i'll be honest it's all the gold why it's why that all the gold rings uh all the gold rings. i know I, I i know exactly what you mean but i enjoyed pepper actually or peppermint to give her her full title uh the fact that you know when he's saying well you know i know what the spirit of christmas is about it's about she's like oh stop human splaining christmas <laughs> which i thought was quite fun too uh and i enjoyed black santa as well i thought that was that was a nice time. Yes. So this that was, of course, David Allen Greer. Um, and this is a bit of a reunion. I don't know how well you remember Boomerang from, what, 1991? Uh, I remember that he was in Boomerang, yes. He was in, and he was the kind of, like, meek, yeah. uh, buttoned-up, kind of nerdy sidekick to Eddie Murphy's very, very cool, sexy, you know, lead in that film. And th- so it's a little bit of a reversal of roles here. Yeah. Um, obviously, people have heard me talking to Reginald Hudlin, who directed that film, about that. But it's also nice just to see that these guys have clearly kept in touch, to some degree at least, that they've kind of maintained a friendship over sort of 30 years and and leapt at the chance to get back together. It's a good year for Black Santa Clauses, actually, with um, Dashing Through the Snow as well, which has Lil Rel Harry as uh, a Santa Claus um hanging out with Ludacris's social worker. Yeah. I, I love it when people, when people literally start going, but you see people on the internet go, but Santa Claus isn't black. It's like, huh, I don't, don't know how to break this to you. <laughs> I don't know how to break this to you. Uh, but but anyway. Santa Claus also isn't. Well, never mind. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, but yeah, no, that's uh, that that was a fun, that was a fun scene. I, I, I thought all of that was really good. I, you know what? So I quite, the things that, that work for me in a Christmas movie, I think are, what I like about this is exactly what Shane Black always says about Christmas, why he sets so many films at Christmas, that Christmas is almost like a weird, surreal reality that descends once a year and changes the fabric of our existence. And it is true because it's a time when so many things happen, like families come together, that's absolutely true. It's massively commercial, that's also true. You get lots of free stuff, that is absolutely true. But it's also a weird time and it is the only time of the year where time just stop 
stops. Like time has no meaning between breaking up for Christmas and going back at the beginning of January. Like they, because it's not like, oh, I've taken some time off work because your job has stopped and it's the only time that the world just grinds to a standstill and nothing happens. So it is particularly special and there's nothing else quite like it. And I like it sometimes when films tap into that without necessarily layering on all of the other stuff that comes with Christmas. Well, I love Love Actually because Love Actually is obviously set at Christmas. You know, it's a we're not going to get into this again. I promise I'm not going to spend not, 20 minutes banging on. We're not going to argue about it again. People actually. can go and listen to the Love Actually episode. But it happens at Christmas and it's in that weird, surreal kind of like snow globe, if you will. But it is about relationships and love and all these sort of different things. Uh, you know, and Die Hard, again, it's it's an action film that just takes place in that weird little reality. Uh, so I like that. And what I like about this is while this is very much a Christmas-themed, you know, almost Christmas-troped film, you do get that real sense of that weird sort of period of time, that weird season. And even between when he encounters Pepper and essentially sells his soul and Christmas, you're still not entirely sure what the time frame is. You're just like, what's happening here? When are we? Because time is meaningless. Time is me I think it's a couple of days, but you're right. And I think also, like, it, you're right about it being a, a step out of life because because you don't feel, as I, I, I would in any other film where the father of a family is made redundant at the beginning of the film and the mother is desperately looking for a you know, a promotion but hasn't got it yet. I would, I personally would be stressed, even as a viewer, mm. about him getting a new job. And I'd be really worried about, oh my goodness, I need him to start going for interviews like now. I mean, I need to see him filling out resumes basically for the rest of the film because otherwise I'm just going to be stressed. But I didn't in this case, simply because of that weird in between time, my my instant thought when this is when this happens at the beginning of the movie was, well, he won't find a new job until the new year. Yeah. So you know, obviously this is going to be a stressful Christmas for him, but you know, that that's not really a factor. There's no point in doing anything about it now. And um and I feel like the the film pretty much takes the same takes the it same does. approach. It's a weird time for 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 people getting made redundant before Christmas, because obviously Genie as well, you know, everyone's mm. losing their jobs just before just before Christmas. That's a very good point. Mm. Yeah. Another another theme to this year's films. And uh, there's another film which we will be talking about at some point where a person loses their job after Christmas. Spoiler for that, but <laughs> we won't say which one it is. Speaking of the redundancies in this, Travante Rhodes, who is properly blinking you'll miss him in this, turns up <laughs> to fire Eddie Murphy and then give him a fleece. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I, I hope for better for him, I'll be honest, after his big breakthrough He's fantastic as well. He has been fantastic in everything, and I include The Predator in that. Not a great film, but he's very good in it. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I thought, oh, is he good? there's going to be loads of Travante Rhodes in there, and there was not. So I think it was very much a kind of a cameo-type appearance. But, yeah, uh, maybe, there, maybe there have been some bits that we missed. Yeah, maybe. And maybe maybe there were some, some, you know, some, some cutting longer scenes. Stuff, but. Yeah. But uh, but no, I think I think you're right. The other thing, of course, that Christmas gives you is a deadline. <laughs> there is an absolute finishing point. Everything has to be okay by Christmas. And let's get a little bit into spoilers here. That's essentially what happens here. Everything has to be okay by Christmas, and therefore that is what happens. Yeah. I think that's true. You know that it's going to wrap up. I mean, I mean, genuinely, there is a part of me that would have massively respected Younger if he'd actually gone full like Darabont's The Mist and said, you know what, we're going to end this in the bleakest way possible. Had him, you know, imprisoned in a bauble for all eternity and just like had look, ended like, you know, like the ending of The Fly. Like, so basically you're close in on the Christmas tree. You, he's on the tree, hung on the tree, screaming, banging on the inside of a bauble and the camera just slowly pulls out from him screaming and the screaming get more distant and the bauble getting smaller and then you see the tree and the fire and all the presents under it and it's just dark and it's like that's how it should have ended wow you are a monster. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, sure, I guess. <laughs> not not really a heartwarming family classic at that point. I mean, I was going to draw a parallel more to Roald Dahl's The Witches. Now, the book ends with our little hero, the little boy, spending the rest of his life as a mouse. Harsh. Yeah. So, I, I you know, that, that seemed unlikely as an outcome for this particular film. <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, whatever it takes to feed your bloodlust, James. It's true. He does get bulbled, though, admittedly only for a short period of time. And I enjoyed him driving around in the little car, though I would question how toy cars work and whether or not you can actually control them from the little plastic steering wheel. But sure, you know, whatever floats your boat. Uh, but, you know, that was that was fun. And, I you know, I also like the fact that yeah, and the thing this is the thing that was on my mind. I was looking at the texture of him as a bauble. I'm like, you are clearly a small kind of porcelain mm. and therefore very brittle and fragile. I was thinking, this guy's getting smashed. There's almost no way around this. And I seem to recall a hen trying to do a pretty good job of of making that a reality. <laughs> he came very close indeed, yeah. I also we we, ha- we haven't mentioned, but we don't need to dwell on them, but like Timothy Simons as the um sort of snooty TV reporter who is stuck <laughs> looking after He's all of this great. stuff alongside Danielle Pinnock. I mean, that combination I thought was was fun. He's graduated top of his class in, you know, uh, postgraduate degree from Columbia Journalism and is now commenting on a Christmas tree, a Christmas decorations competition somewhere in California. I enjoyed those two when we kind of switched to the studio and he's just barely keeping it together, clearly thinking he's very much above this. Obviously, he's fantastic in things like Veep and I think he was in Station Eleven as well. Uh, but yeah, he was he was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and she is the far more effective TV presenter i thought was was absolutely and then isn't it that that wonderful sort of like capitalist thing is that oh it was it was prizes to the value of a hundred thousand dollars not actually a hundred thousand dollars it's like money off what was it like kebabs or something tacos tacos yeah that's a that's a lot of tacos that's a lot of tacos i'm sorry it was quite taco-y if you will oh you know oh dear so yeah i mean look this is a big silly studio uh star-led Christmas piece of nonsense, but we are always grading on a scale for Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, any Christmas movie that can surprise two old cynics like ourselves mm. like this has got something going for it. I agree. I agree. I, I like this. It, like, I don't think it's going to be one that I will return to annually or anything like that. Uh, there's only room for one love, actually, in my life. But uh, but I liked it. Oh my I, God, Die Hard? <laughs> I'm telling Die Hard on you. <laughs> I, like, I, I like this. Like, would, would watch again, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think if, if if you know, I came into the room and a member of the family had it on TV, I would happily sit down and watch it. I'm not saying it's on my extensive rotation yearly, but um, but really well done because it didn't have to be anywhere near this original. No, it didn't. And I think that's smart. I think anything that does something new, as you say, like, you know, you just think, oh, it makes you sort of like sit up and pay attention. So, yes, well done. This is not a lump of coal from Eddie Murphy on Christmas Eve. Thanks, Eddie. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie Murphy, and thank you very much, James. James, where can people find you? Oh God! Uh, apart from here, you find me in the one dark house on a very bright street this Christmas. Uh, obviously, the Pilot TV podcast. You can find me every Monday, and the Empire podcast every Thursday. Otherwise, at James C. Dyer on social media. Fantastic, and I have to recommend contractually James on both of those. <laughs> so, uh, so I will see you <laughs> see you there. In the meantime, Merry Christmas! Thanks for joining us. God bless us, everyone. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. 
This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.